0: it was hard to believe that it was in March of 2011 when my wife Kim and our 4-month-old daughter at the time Delaney were loading up a little Honda Accord at the time we were living in Birmingham, Alabama, where I had been serving with the church for the past year, a church that kind of took us in to just pour into us with a desi- they knew our desire was to plant a church in an underreached context of the city. They know that they knew that Seattle and the Pacific Northwest had been growing in our hearts for several years up to then. And so we spent a year journeying with this church. And then when March rolled around, they commissioned us out to transition and to relocate our lives to come and to to plant a church here, and so we loaded up that little Honda, and we drove the whole way to to arrive in this beautiful uh, yet broken city and we came to uh, with the intention of planting a church Now it was a culmination of about a ten year journey. The Lord birthed within me a desire for pastoral ministry and a love for the local church, starting in two thousand and one. And over the course of the next 10 years, there were many moments where I just wanted to run into it and start serving as a pastor. I wanted to step in and start leading out, and, and I wanted to get out into a less uh, a place where the gospel might not be as pronounced or as uh, f- seemingly affluent as some of the places that I had grown up, grown up in and moved around in, and between Louisiana and some other places. And, and all the while, over the course of those 10 years, when I would get really eager and I'd start chomping at the bit, ready to jump into the local church, i I sense the Lord just telling me over and over and over again, Andrew, I I love my people too much to let you lead them too early. And so for 10 years, he just took me on a journey where he was rooting things out of my heart, where he was going to work on my character. Now, to be sure, I'm, I'm still a work in progress, no doubt about that. But by God's grace, I have come a little bit of ways over the course of that 10 years as God was, I, th- I believe, preparing me to step into leadership of a local church where my heart was, was, was fixated for so long. Just at the time, over the course of those 10 years, I, I, sp- I was engaged in ministry. I was preaching and teaching the Bible in various contexts, usually with collegiates and students. I was traveling in different contexts like that. and In fact, that ministry brought me to Seattle for the first time in 2004. And I came out here to engage in these ministries. And while I was serving that summer, I was struck by two things that I kept brushing up against. Two things that the Lord, I think, used to really drive Seattle and to drive the beautiful Pacific Northwest into uh, the center of my focus for ministry and the focus of my life. One of which was how discouraged so many of the leadership, so many of the leaders I was meeting were. Uh, To be honest with you, I was meeting a lot of leaders over the course of that summer, and a lot of them were tired a lot of them were discouraged. A lot of them were loved at Jesus, and they were passionately serving Jesus, but they also recognized some of the challenges they were facing in their ministries. And my heart just went out to them when I would talk to them, and they would confide in me about some of the struggles and some of the, their struggles with the gospel and what they were wrestling through in their ministries. And so the Lord just kind of made me aware that there's, there's a lot of work to be done, and the laborers are few, so to speak. But then the second thing that jumped out to me that I really wanted to be a part of, and that was a fact, if, if you were to compare and contrast the type of students I was engaging when I would travel uh, throughout the south- Southeast and to some degree all the way up the east-, east Coast, even into Baltimore, Maryland, some of the places I was hanging out and doing ministry, the students I was engaging in those contexts, they could, they could easily be described as having kind of an unconscious unbelief meaning they had heard the gospel many times, and they've kind of assumed a Christian identity or a gospel identity because of their upbringing and their familiarity with Christianity. And and it was just kind of a... So they might not really believe the gospel, but they didn't know they didn't believe the gospel until you try to really dive into what the gospel means and the claim that the gospel makes on a person's life. And so it was a lot of unconscious unbelief. But whenever I came to the Pacific Northwest in 2004 and again in 2006 it seemed that those I was engaging and interacting with wasn't marked so much by an unconscious unbelief, but by a conscious unbelief. Those who did not believe the gospel knew they did not believe the gospel. Those who did not know the gospel, for the most part, there's always exceptions to every I don't want to overly generalize the situation, but a lot of the students I was engaging with was marked by a conscious unbelief and And I wanted to have that starting point. My heart went out to that that meeting ground for conversation and that meeting ground for discipleship. You kind of know where everybody's coming from right off the bat. And so I just fell in love with that dynamic. And so 2004, 2006 went on the next several years, just continuing serving in different ways. And then finally the Lord gave me the honor and the privilege of relocating my my, my family and my life to this city to begin the process of planting the Hellas Church. And God has been incredibly gracious all along the while. And we are looking forward to more days by his grace and for his glory. Days to serve, days to love, days to see him form a worshiping missional community known as who identify themselves as the Hallows Church. So it's a privilege to be out here. I'm grateful to God for it. And one of the things that the Lord used over that ten-year journey before we actually made it out here, there was one passage in particular that he continued uh, calling my attention to. He just kind of used to grip my heart and to grow my heart. And that passage is the one that I want to take you to tonight. It's that passage found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 10, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, open up there, and I want to look at this story, and I want to kind of show you some of the things that, that Jesus showed me as I was praying and thinking about transitioning and starting the work of planting a church out here, and I hope that this passage is used in your heart as it has been used in mine, and that we will find ourselves... Uh, ready to roll with Jesus as we continue moving into the future in these ways. So Matthew chapter nine, beginning in verse 35, uh, just read that one verse and I'll give you a little bit of context. It says in verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So here you have a picture of Jesus. He's engaging in his ministry. The the purpose for his life, he's, he's engaging it, he's fulfilling it, he's doing the types of things that the Father sent him into the world to do. Namely, he came to teach people about who God is and he came to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. So you see a word-oriented ministry there. He taught and he preached. But he didn't just engage in a word oriented ministry. He didn't just verbally communicate the truths about the kingdom of God. He visibly demonstrated the power of God's kingdom. He healed the people who were coming to him of every disease and every affliction, word and deed fused together in the life and the ministry. Of Jesus and he's been roaming a region of the world known as Galilee this is north of Jerusalem north of Judea and this was kind of where Jesus hung out most of his ministry prior to turning his attention and moving towards Jerusalem where he would be crucified now by this moment Many people had heard of Jesus. Many people had caught wind of his power. Many people had caught wind of the way in which he was teaching and engaging the world. And so they started coming to hear him. They started coming to even be healed by him. They knew Jesus to be a compassionate leader. They knew him to be a unique leader. And so people began rallying around Jesus. And you have this moment in Matthew chapter 9 as, as he's engaging in a word and deed ministry. And then in verse, 35, verse 36, look at what happened it says and when jesus saw the crowds when he saw the people who were coming to to hear him and to be healed by him he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd then he said to his disciples you know the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In other words, the very ministry he was, engaged, he was engaged in was the very ministry he wanted to multiply through his disciples, that one day the disciples would take his physical place in the world and continue this message of word and deed ministry, advancing the kingdom of God through teaching, through preaching, and even through healing and doing the th- showcasing the power of God's kingdom in the world. And so you see this movement. You see Jesus doing these things in verse 35. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, he calls his disciples to do the same things, very similar things. And you just kind of nestled between there. You see a lot about his motivation. You see a lot about his burden. You see a lot about his vision kind of nestled in between those passages. And so I want to just make a couple of observations for you tonight. And those observations have to do with three participles. You might say seeing, sensing, and serving First, the idea of seeing. As Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing diseases, it says in verse 36, he saw the crowds. Jesus' ministry was motivated in large part by the connection between what he saw and how what he saw affected him emotionally, affected his soul He saw the crowds who were coming towards him, and he had compassion for them because, there it is again, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, Jesus saw the condition of the lost. Jesus did not live his life with his head in the sand. He didn't live his life refusing to look at hard things. He didn't ignore the problems that were paramount around him. He saw the condition of the lost. And there are basically three things you might identify as what he saw when he looked at the crowds, the first of which is he saw a people who were, yes, harassed by their sin. You can say they were harassed by their sin because of some other things that would go down in the book of Matthew, but look at that word harassed. That word harassed is a colorful word. It's a word that should provoke something in us. It's a word that could also be translated to, uh, meant to be beaten up. It was a word that meant to be battered, meant to be mangled. It's a word that conveyed this image of being ripped or torn or skinned alive. It was an image of devastation. This word was used in Judges chapter 4 verse 22 to describe what happened to a man who had a temple a stake driven into his temple. It's that type of harassment. It's an image of devastation. It's an image of harm. And for him to say this about the crowds was an indictment on the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders weren't helping things out. This is why we can say they were harassed by their sin. Because if you look further in Matthew's gospel, you hear some of the things that Jesus says about the religious leaders and how he's not helping them deal with their fallen condition. He's not... They're not teaching them about the kingdom of God. They're not teaching them about how God's grace will lift us and liberate us from the harassment of sin in our lives. Matthew chapter 23, verse 4, for example, Jesus would indict the religious leaders, saying, These guys are just tying up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. You see, I think deep down inside, we, we know we're flawed. Sin is the easiest reality to prove in the universe, perhaps. Deep down inside, we all know we're flawed. We all know we have character flaws and sin struggles. And, and these people knew it too. And the religious leaders who were commissioned by God, so it seemed, to represent God to them and to help them navigate their broken, fallen, sinful condition, all they did was make things worse. Because when these people would come to them for help in the synagogues, all they would hear, it seems, were laws that they could not fulfill. All they would hear is standards of righteousness that they could not reach on their own. And so this burdened the people even more, so much so that in Matthew chapter 23 verse 13, Jesus would actually say these religious leaders are shutting the kingdom of heaven in their faces. They weren't being served by the religious leadership in the first century. No wonder they flocked to this Jesus who was communicating a different message. No wonder they flocked to this Jesus who was indicting the religious leaders while showing another way, telling people to do what he would tell them to do. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, a Jesus who would say, Come to me. You're struggling with sin, come to me. You're burdened by sin, come to me. Don't go to a law, don't go to a rule, don't go to a religion, don't go to a building. I want you to come to me. I want you to step into a life-changing, liberating relationship with me. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is that? grace. Why is that gospel? Because Jesus would live the life that none of these people in the crowd could ever possibly live. Jesus would die a death that would work something salvific for all those who would trust in him. Jesus, who would then rise from the grave, bringing liberty for the captives, those who are oppressed and harassed by sin. Jesus lives, dies, and rises again to lift that burden and to bring liberty to our lives so he saw people who are harassed by their sin but it's not just sin that's that's a problem right he doesn't just see people who are harassed by sin he sees people who are helpless in their sufferings You see, sin and suffering, although we can't draw a tit-for-tat relationship with particular sins in our lives and particular sufferings in our lives, that's nonsense, we we don't want to do that, but we do recognize that there's a relationship between the reality of sin and the reality of suffering in the world. And so as these crowds came to Jesus, he not only saw a people who were harassed by their sin, he saw a people who were helpless in their sufferings. Their bodies were falling apart. They were sick. They were dying. They were hungry. They were impoverished. He saw people who were helpless in their sufferings. And again, what compounded the problem for them was that the religious leaders couldn't do anything about it. In fact, the religious leaders compounded the problem because in their minds, they thought, well, if a leper comes up to them wanting help, they're going to turn and run in the opposite direction because they had this idea that if they come in contact with a person who is sick then that sickness would transfer to them and that would defile them and then they would not be qualified to enter the synagogue and worship with God's people on the Sabbath day. And so the religious leaders could not help the suffering people that Jesus is seeing in this moment. So he sees a people who are helpless in their sufferings. They cannot overcome the struggles of life in a fallen world. And then he goes on, you might say, not only are they harassed by their sin, not only are they helpless in their suffering, he saw a people who were hopeless in their separation. This was a people who were hopeless in their separation. This is why he would go on to say, not only only are they harassed and helpless, he then describes them, get this, like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They have no leadership. Nobody's loving them. Nobody's caring for them. Nobody's helping them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you know, I'm sure, that sheep are the dumbest creatures on the face of the planet. A sheep without a shepherd is a, is a bad thing to be because sheep cannot take care of themselves they cannot forage for food they cannot defend themselves from attack sheep are utterly vulnerable sheep are utterly helpless they they can't take care of themselves so if they're without a shepherd they're in a pro- they have a huge problem and so i find it interesting that one of the most common metaphors god uses in the bible to describe people like you and me sheep And the vast majority of people that we're going to come in contact with in this city are sheep without a shepherd because the vast majority of people that we're going to come in contact with on a daily basis do not know the good shepherd, the one who is willing to lay down his life for the sheep, the one who lived and died and rise again, the one that we're worshiping and serving as a community of faith. And, and so we, we we want to understand what it means for people to be hopeless in their separation from the shepherd. We, we want to feel the weight of that. We don't want to ignore that. We don't want to put our head in the sand about that we want to our eyes to be open so that we can see the types of realities that Jesus sees when he looks upon the crowd he sees a people harassed by sin helpless in suffering and hopeless in their separation and so you get this rhythm where he talks about sheep at the end of verse 36 but then in verse 37 he shifts the metaphor he's no longer talking about sheep and shepherds he talks about a harvest field and at first glance, it's a very positive image. He's saying the harvest is plentiful. There are a lot of people who need love. There are a lot of people who need, who need redemption, who need to come to the flock, who need to understand the kingdom of God. He sees all this potential, but he doesn't just see potential when he looks out on the harvest field. He, he sees something else as well. And to understand this, I'm going to need you to do a little exploration with me in the Bible because that image of a harvest field isn't always a positive image in the, in the Scriptures. In fact, the vast majority of times the harvest is referred to in the Bible. is not referring to something positive. It's referring to something that should bother us. It's referring to something that should uh, cause compassion to swell up within us. Let me show you some examples. Isaiah chapter 17. If you want to turn back to Isaiah, feel free to do so. These passages will pop up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Listen to the language of the prophet. He says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, referring to Israel and their leadership. They have forgotten the God of their salvation. They're not trusting God. They're not loving God. They're not serving as a light to the nations. They're not loving the surrounding nations well. They've forgotten the God of their salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain you have this fleeting harvest, a harvest that will flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. So it's not a very positive picture. Then you keep going. Joel chapter 3, for example. Joel chapter 3, another one of the prophets. Smaller book, but no less significant in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. "'Consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, "'let all the men of war draw near. "'Let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords "'and your pruning hooks into spears. "'Let the weak say, I am a warrior. "'Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, "'and gather yourselves there. "'Bring down your warriors, O Lord. "'Let the nations stir themselves up "'and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, "'and there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. "'Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe.'" "'Ripe for what?' Ripe for judgment is what Joel's referring to. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for, the, for their evil is great. Their sin is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You see, I think when Jesus refers to the harvest being plentiful, I think on one hand, yes, he's referring to its potential. There are a lot of people who's going to come into the kingdom of God. There's a lot of people who are going to come to know the good shepherd. There's a lot of people who are going to be reaped for salvation. But he also understands that there are many people who won't come, many people who won't. He he didn't just see people who are harassed and helpless. He saw people who are hopelessly separated from their God. The reason why I think this is because in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus would talk about the harvest field again in the same gospel, verse 20. There Jesus would talk about the harvest and the time when the wheat would be separated from the weeds. And he elaborates on verses 40 and 42 of, of chapter 13, and saying this is a time when it will be shown, there's coming a day, when all, where there are many who will be headed for an eternal enjoyment of God, and there are some who won't. And then you carry that image all the way to Revelation chapter 14. You see it pop up again there, verses 14 through 16 of Revelation 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. You see, when Jesus looks upon the crowd and he describes them as a harvest that is plentiful, he's talking about that immediate moment people have to to be brought into the kingdom of God. And it echoes something that's going to happen later, this day of judgment that is described all throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets that Jesus touches on in Matthew 13, that Revelation affirms as well. It's not entirely positive when he talks about the harvest field. It should do something within us. There's no wonder when Jesus looked out and he saw the crowd, there's no wonder that he was stirred with compassion. There's no wonder he was affected emotionally by what he saw. And that word compassion is a deeply emotional word. It's it's like Jesus was punched in the gut his stomach began to, to turn in knots as he considered all the harassed and the helpless and those who were separated from God, those who would, might step into eternity and not know the God of salvation. He was bothered by that. It stirred compassion within him as he saw the condition of the lost. And I'm wondering if one of the reasons perhaps you and I don't talk about the gospel as honestly and as openly as we ought is because we, we live our lives the shades down. We don't want to see the true human condition. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about suffering. We don't want to talk about separation. And one of the reasons perhaps compassion isn't swelling up within us is because we try to ignore those heavy realities. We don't want to talk about them. So we escape from them by not being honest about the Bible, not being honest about the scriptures. We, we try to escape these hard truths and And so it's no wonder that we can walk down the street day in and day out and not be moved by the of humanity that we see and not be stirred to compassion over the fact that there are people who are harassed by sin, who are helpless in their sufferings, people who are hopeless right now without Christ, and yet here, you and I come in here week after week, and we sing and we celebrate the gospel. We go into our missional communities and we encourage one another with the gospel, but how often are we moving in light of that reality all the other avenues and on all the other moments of our weekly lives? I'm convinced that if you and I are going to be the type of church God has called and commissioned us to be, we have to open our eyes. We have to see the connection between seeing and sensing. But in order for seeing and sensing to arise within us, a supernatural awakening needs to happen. We, We need Jesus to open our eyes to see what he sees. We need Jesus to stir our hearts to feel what he feels. We don't want to be afraid of the hard emotions of life in a fallen world. We want to feel them. That word compassion that Jesus is feeling, it literally means to suffer with. Jesus began to suffer with the people he was watching. He began to hurt for them. He began to bear their burdens. He began to suffer with the crowds that he saw. There's a connection between seeing and sensing, and we need that same connection to be supernaturally wrought in our hearts as well. There was a guy who wrote a book called My Name is Asher Lev, and he describes what happened in the life of an artist who who experienced this relationship between seeing and sensing, a day when something began to click within him, and he began to to feel what he saw, And there's a moving passage in the book where this artist, one of the characters, is sitting at his dinner table, and he looks across the table at a familiar scene, his family, people he's seen every day of his life. But in this one moment, he looks up, he looks across the table, and things begin to change. A connection is drawn between what he saw and what he sensed. And this is how the author would describe it. He would describe it this way. That was the night I began to realize that something was happening to my eyes, I looked at my father and saw lines and planes I had never seen before. I could feel with my eyes, I could feel with my eyes moving across the lines around his eyes and into and over the deep furrows on his forehead. He was 35 years old and there were lines on his face and forehead. I could feel the lines with my eyes and feel too the long, straight, flat bridge of his nose and the clear darkness of his eyes and the strong, thick curves of the red eyebrows and the thick, red hair of his beard graying a little. I saw the stray gray strands and the tangle of hair below his lips. I could feel lines and points and planes. I could feel texture and color. I felt myself flooded with the shapes and textures of the world around me. I closed my eyes, but I could still see that way inside my head. I was seeing with another pair of eyes. Another pair of eyes that had suddenly come awake. And we need God to... Give us another pair of eyes. Another pair of eyes that will suddenly come awake. A pair of eyes that will cause us to sense that which we see. Because not only did Jesus see the condition of the lost, he felt compassion for the lost. There was a connection between his seeing and his sensing. And I pray that by God's grace, there would be a connection in ours as well. So we experienced this thing called compassion, this idea of suffering with. And and you know as well as I do that compassion simply felt does no one no good. Which is why compassion doesn't simply mean to suffer with. Compassion in Jesus is really what kind of drove him in his ministry. His compassion led to tangible action. His compassion is what sustained him to endure all that he would endure. His compassion is what would cause him to minister to the the crowds when they would come to him and he wouldn't bell on them. It's compassion that drove him to the people, not away from the people like all the other religious leaders were doing. It was compassion that drove his tangible action. And you see tangible action displayed in this text. What's he doing? He's teaching. That's tangible He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's tangible. And he's healing diseases and liberating those who are afflicted. Tangible action. But not only does it come in those forms, you see tangible action in his compassion by how he's investing in his disciples. He's multiplying this ministry or he intends to multiply this ministry in those who are following him. Saying, I'm going to pour this reality into you so that it can flow through you to others because the reality is there are more people here than I can care for. So I need my people, I need my disciples, I need those who would later become the church to step up and be gripped by a similar compassion, driving their tangible action. But of course you and I know that Jesus' tangible action did not just simply center on teaching and preaching and, and healing those he healed in the Gospels. His tangible action ultimately comes to a climax when he goes to the cross. And there he would suffer with there he would suffer for there he would take on our sin take on our suffering there he would take our place as sheep without a shepherd as he would endure the forsakenness of his father on the cross for our redemption this is exactly what isaiah 53 verse 4 is getting at isaiah 53 verse 4 let me share it with you listen to the language compassionate act, tangible action, the compassion of Christ. Verse four, surely Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's suffering, right? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Remember what he cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember how he went through hell on the cross. That's what Isaiah is predicting there. Then in verse five, but he was wounded. Wounded for what? Our transgressions. Our sin. He was wounded for Reasons that are tied to our culpability. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, here it is again, iniquities. And upon Christ was the chastisement that brought us peace. Get this, and with his stripes we are healed. You go one step further, listen to this. All we like sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, when Jesus looked out over the world and he saw humanity harassed by sin, helpless in suffering, hopelessly separated from the Father, Jesus would step into our shoes and he would identify with us in such a way that when he'd go to the cross, he would take all of that from us. He would liberate us. He would save us. He would redeem us. He would ransom us, all driven by compassion, all driven by the tangible action of the gospel. This is precisely what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And here you and I sit tonight benefiting from his life and his death and his resurrection We don't have to be harassed by our sin. We're not helpless in our sufferings. We're not hopelessly separated from the God who created us and the God who loves us. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. We have been bought back. And so we sit here tonight benefiting from that. But here's the kicker. Jesus doesn't just want us to sit here and benefit ourselves. He wants the blessing of salvation that he's poured out into our lives to flow through us, impacting the lives of those around us. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So when you look at what Jesus is seeing and sensing in Matthew 9, then you move to verse 37 and you see what he begins to do about it. He sees the crowd he senses compassion for the crowd, and then he begins to set in motion a plan to serve the crowd. And you get this dynamic of Jesus empowering his disciples to care for those who are hurting, to care for the lost. This is exactly what he does in verse 37. As his compassion is swelling up in him, verse 37, he turns his attention and speaks to his disciples. And notice what he does, because what he does is counterintuitive. What he does is what some of us would probably chide him for doing if he were alive today. Because if you and I are going to stand in front of a sea of humanity, harassed by sin, helpless in suffering... Hopelessly separated from God, you would think the goal would be then to, okay, let's create a nonprofit who can go and exercise justice and walk humbly and extend mercy. Let's let's go and, and do something directly for those who are harassed and helpless and hopeless. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, when he turns his attention in verse 38, verse 37, he says to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? Therefore, pray the first thing he does, he tells his disciples to pray. But notice who they're praying for. They're not praying for the people. They're not praying for the crowd. They're not praying for the lost. Instead of praying for the lost, he tells his disciples, a primary way in which you are going to care for the lost is by praying. Get this, praying for the church. We care for the lost, not by praying for the lost, ordinarily. We care for the lost by praying for the church. Jesus says to pray for laborers to be raised up. Pray for people to go and to engage. You're going to care for the lost, not by praying for the lost, but by praying for the church. And that is so counterintuitive That is so counterintuitive because if we see hurting people, we want to pray for them, right? We want to pray for their needs to be met. We want to pray for food to be given to them. We want to pray for someone to share the gospel with them. So so we tend to pray for the lost. But Jesus here is saying, no, when you see this and when you sense that, the way you're going to care for them is by praying for the church. And that's counterintuitive, I believe, because there's no risk in praying for the lost, there's no risk in praying for those who are harassed, helpless, and hopelessly separated from God. There's no risk in praying for that. You can pray for that from a distance. You can pray for that all day, every day, but there's no risk inherent to that prayer. But if you start praying for the church, all of a sudden you're stepping into a world of risk. Because all of a sudden you're opening yourself up to being the answer to the prayer you are praying You pray for the church, you're going to risk being called and commissioned by Jesus to answer the very prayer you're praying. And this is exactly what goes down in chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus turns his attentions to the disciples. He calls to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He prays saying, pray for the church, and as you pray for the church, you will find yourself soon, very soon, participating in kingdom activity. So if you want to be a casual, nominal follower of Jesus, just kind of coasting through life in, a, in this fallen world, living with your head in the sand, ignoring the harassed and the helpless and the hopeless around you, don't pray for the church. But if you want to sink up and sink in with the mission of magnifying and multiplying the gospel through this city to the ends of the earth, start praying for the church. Pray for more laborers to be raised up. Pray for more leaders to be mobilized by the power of the Spirit with the gospel and for the gospel to go and to engage. Let's pray for that. And as we pray, let's find ourselves participating in the very harvest field we're praying for. This is why it's a risky prayer. It's also risky because it's easier for you and I to sit back and to complain about the church than it is to pray for the church. It's far easier for us to sit back and point the finger at the church saying, well, you guys aren't doing this, or you guys aren't doing that, or you guys, I don't hear this, or I don't see that. And So we just kind of complain about the church. Now, there, is, there are moments when we need to call the church into a deeper obedience to the gospel that they believe in. But if you're complaining without praying, you're not doing anybody any good, not even yourself. If you're complaining without praying, you're just hurting yourself. Certainly not helping the church. So what we want to do as people who see and sense who begin to care for the lost, who are stirred up with compassion, tangible action, we want to start praying regularly for the church, praying for God to send out laborers into the harvest field, praying for God to mobilize more disciples in our community to go and to help and to speak the gospel and to show the gospel to engage in a ministry of word and deed. Ultimately, what ends up happening, if you start praying for the church, you will then become the church. You'll start caring for the lost simply by being the church. I'm convinced that so many of us have an unbiblical understanding of what the church is. We, we build those, these buildings. We rent them out. We are given them in West Seattle, whatever the case may be. And all of a sudden we start thinking that church is about going somewhere on Sunday. That church is a place that you go to. But what you see all throughout the New Testament is that the church Local churches are not places people go to, although we do gather together weekly, and we love doing so. A church is ultimately people who are going and engaging, who are being, who are living full throttle, engaging in ministries of word and deed, imitating Christ in union with Christ. That that is who the church is. The church for us is not where we go on Sundays. The church for us is our very identity. If you want to complain about the church, recognize that you are the church. You're just beating yourself up. If you see a problem or a hole or a lack of something in the life of a church, maybe you are the one who are to step up and to fulfill that void, meet that need. Stop sitting back on your heels waiting for everybody else to do something. Take initiative. Be proactive. Let your burden give birth to vision and then mobilize to action in faith, by grace, in humble community with your church and go do something about it. We care for the lost when we learn how to pray for the church rather than complaining about the church. And we care for the lost when you and I stop going to church and we start being the church. And we allow what we do together on a weekly basis to thrust us outward To thrust us out into the city. To love and to serve and to care in word and deed. That word send in chapter 10 verse 1, it literally means to thrust out. It's a violent image. Jesus threw the disciples out into the crowd saying, Go help, serve, love, lead, speak, show And that's essentially what I hope happens every time we gather together on a weekly basis. We come together, we engage the gospel together, we grow together, we nurture one another, we sing praises to Jesus, we are transformed in the worship that we engage in together. But ultimately, as we do that, we want that to thrust us outward so that we go and we seek to bless the city that we live in, being the church that God has called and claimed us to be. And so one of the things I wanna help us do or one of the things I want to challenge you guys to do as we as we kind of wrap this up tonight, as we think about walking into the future by faith, is that I want to encourage each of one of each and every one of you to, to join me in praying a 938 prayer. A nine thirty-eight prayer that I'm going to encourage you to set up some type of notification on your phone, on your computer, write it down in your calendar, but at 938 every every morning. Get, a notifi- get some type of notification that can remind you of this prayer so that you can join me and other disciples in praying for the church so that we might care for the lost. 9.38, of course, reflecting Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, but it's a prayer that... Once we're notified, it's a one-sentence prayer, it's a breath prayer, it's easy, it's not hard to pray, and it doesn't take long to pray, but it can help focus us together as we're out working, as we're out playing, as we're out studying, as we're out doing all the things that we do. And that prayer is found there at the bottom of your notes, and I'll give it to you and encourage you. 9.38 a.m., we're going to commit together as a prayer here in Fremont, our friends in West Seattle, our Our friends in North Seattle, we're going to pray this together every day at 9.38 a.m. And It goes like this. It says, Father, would you open our eyes to see what you see? Father, open our eyes to see what you see. Stir our hearts to feel what you feel. And then empower our lives to serve as you serve in word and deed. It's a simple prayer. It's a risky prayer. But it's a prayer that I want every disciple among us to be praying at 9.38 a.m. every morning. And let's see how Jesus empowers us to be the people he's called and claimed us to be. We're here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. Let's maximize it. Praying, Father, open our eyes to see what you see. Stir our hearts to feel what you feel. And empower our lives to serve as you serve in word Indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you do just that in us? Would you do that for us? Would you do that through us? Would you open our eyes to see what you see? Would you stir our hearts to feel what you feel? And would you empower our lives to serve as you serve? Give us grace to be a people together in this city who are making much of the gospel through word and deed, blessing this beautiful yet broken city that we live in, nestled in a beautiful yet broken world, we pray that you would give us grace to magnify and to multiply your gospel through this city to the ends of the earth so that people can be cared for. God, I ask and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.